everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Behold Podcast on the Genre Equality Channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Aisa. Uh, and this week, we'll be talking about uh, three brand new topics. Uh, they're not exactly new. The titles have been out for a while, but we're here to revisit them, especially <laughs> our main topic, uh, Ridley Scott's um, seminal sci-fi classic, uh, Blade Runner, will be our main topic for for this episode. And the, and on the flip side, I have recommended to Isa um, a little A24 film uh, directed by Trey Edward Schultz called Waves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I myself have revisited uh, um, a Samurai Jack, uh, the Samurai Jack cartoon by Gennady Tartofsky, uh, which aired on the Cartoon Network ages ago, um, about a decade ago from now. Uh, and then it came back for a revival, a final season on Adult Swim, which uh, <laughs> was more mature in theme uh, and a bit more serialized. So we'll get into um, why I missed out on Samurai Jack during its heyday. I didn't really. I, I watched it a bit. Uh, yeah. But you know, um, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that later. Lah. But let's begin with Ridley Scott's uh, now seminal Blade Runner. Um, it is uh, this tale of a grizzled bounty hunter, Rick Deckard. Uh, and his mission to uh, execute a mutinous gang of replicants, um, so-called synthetic biological androids who are barely distinguishable from humans. Uh, it's his third film, uh, and it remains his most beloved and richly layered work. But um, we weren't alive when uh, the movie first came out, obviously. We yeah. were, uh, it, was, it came out in 1982. Uh, so a lot of people do know, though, that the movie came out to not such a sterling reception. Yeah. Um, it received mixed reviews from critics. Uh, it bombed hard at the box office. and But it has sort of grown to become uh, first a cult classic and then now just a straight-up classic. You know, uh, Everyone loves it. Uh, so what, in your opinion, since you know, you, you're the one who's kind of suggested the main topic, and not that I don't love Blade Runner too, I freaking love Blade Runner. But uh, why has Blade Runner uh, gone this route? Why do you think it was underappreciated for its time? And then how did it uh, get to become uh, the, the classic that it now is? Uh, I think it has a lot to, to do with the period of time in which it was released. Right? So it released in, in 1982. Yeah. Uh, and of the, crops of the crop of films that came out during that period of time, like comparatively speaking, I think Blade Runner was a lot slower uh, mm. than... Um, what people wanted it to be, right? Like, you know, with a title like Blade Runner and then you have Harrison Ford, who at that point in time was like an up-and-coming, like, action star, right? Um, People were expecting more action. People were expecting a lot more from this sci-fi film than the action. Star Wars, you think? Yeah, I think so. I I, I think so. I mean, like, given, given, you know, um, Ridley Scott and what he had done at that point in time, I don't think they were expecting such a sometimes glacial moving film, right? Mm. Like, uh, it receives some praise, right, for uh, the themes and the complexity and, of course, the beautiful visuals and all of that. But Soundtrack as well. And, of course, Evangelist's amazing soundtrack, yeah. uh, which we'll get into later. But, mm. like, it doesn't... Um, there are huge portions of the film that are, it really is just scenery chewing, right? All the way from the very, very onset when you have, like, oh, like five to seven minutes of just silence, right? Before the yep. actual opening dialogue happens. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you, you kind of, I think it kind of threw people for a loop, right? Uh, um, when it came out, like uh, they had a, what, $30 million budget and they only made something like 
forty million off the box office when it released. Yeah, and and only twenty eight of those in in America. So uh, yeah. Pretty, pretty poorly underperformed. Yeah, and then of course on top of that, uh, there were just like several different cuts of it, right? That were released. Uh, what what we're reviewing, so to say, is is the final cut, which uh, really Scott actually had artistic mm-hmm. control over. Uh, mm-hmm. But that only came like two thousand seven. Yeah, exactly. So many many years after the fact uh, of the theatrical cut uh, itself. Mm-hmm. So I think like there are quite a number of reasons why it bombed at the the office, uh, yep. the box office. Um, but how? What's more interesting is uh, how it eventually uh, became the film of renown that it is now, right? So much so that it spun off its own sequel, uh, you yes. know. And of course, the great influence that it's had over different types and mediums of art over the years. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. It's I I think it's it's a brilliant film. Um, obviously I did not watch the theatrical cut, seeing as well not at first at least. Uh, I subsequently viewed the theatrical cut, the director's cut, and then the <laughs> quote unquote final cut. Uh, sort of like kind of in preparation to to see what the differences are But yeah. like my my first experience with it was the director's cut, and same here. Uh, I was watching it. This is prior to two thousand seven. I think it was in the mid nineties or early nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the worst possible conditions, being that I watched it on a plane, actually. Oh, um, wow. I was on a plane, I think I was on a trip with my family to Europe. I, I can't quite remember where I was going, la, but I remember watching Blade Runner on a plane and just being very wowed by it. And keep in mind that this was late primary school, early secondary school version of myself. So mm. I was fairly unaware. I wasn't a cinephile at the time, la, so yep. I had not seen noir films mm-hmm. i did not know about double indemnity or or the big sleep or the third man or i had not read raymond chandler <laughs> so the presentation of noir to me was very new and fresh mm-hmm. and noir in a distinct setting that was a uh, cyberpunk mm-hmm. uh which kind of has the same neon lit dark uh, voiceover elements that uh that noir has you know so it's kind of a, a sci-fi ma- mesh made in heaven yeah um i was very thick taken aback and wowed by by how different uh, Han Solo was in this movie. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, his, his, his leather trench coat, the moodiness, the broodiness. I, I would later come to find out like, that, that those are staples of the noir genre. But it, it was my introduction to it and, and that was what I, I, I first took out of it. Like. I had mm-hmm. never seen a character presented that way to, you know, kind of uh, the atmosphere, the bluesy jazz soundtrack. The, the scenery chewing, the, the long spurts of rain that you're just watching, you know, just to set the mood. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, it it kind of set a, an emotional and atmospheric relationship with the movie before you even uh, get to the story per se. Uh, yeah. And I guess a lot of straightforward viewers or at sci-fi viewers at the time might not be used uh, to the uh, kind of this kind of artful uh, genre meshing approach like, that really mm-hmm. Scott was going for you know um, yes he did do Alien prior to this but Alien was kind of um, a more straightforward horror la. like yeah. you know horror yeah. and sci-fi kind of always blended so I think that was that was a lot easier and then subsequently watching the theatrical cut I kind of understood why it was so poorly received you mm. know because I feel I feel like the it was a very different movie. La. It was like Harrison Ford's uh voiceover uh sort of sort of like kind of grounds the story, but it yep. it creates a much more simplistic um kind of structure la, that that leans heavily into noir and less into 
the the Philip K. Dick book, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Right? In that, like, it doesn't really explore the themes, you know, uh, mm-hmm. of of artificial intelligence, etc., uh, etc. Et and the the kind of overt hardball influence kind of went too overboard. Yeah, I, I feel you know it yeah. wasn't it wasn't a nice blend of sci-fi and and noir. It was just a purely noir film, like, Which I I guess sci-fi fans took to exception to. Direct director's cut, however. Uh, completely changes the film's uh, pacing and structure. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of transforms the landscape of Blade Runner into this kind of uh, expansive exercise in slow burn sor- storytelling through visual world building and through audio mood setting, you know, mm-hmm. uh, through the removal of Deckett's kind of post- post-production thought process. Yep. Um, it, it's kind of the most uh, visceral to the experience of, it's, it's the most vital uh, to enjoying the ex- watching the movie because, like, you know, it's not explained to you all the time. You know? Yeah. Um, the director's cut also included new footage that would kind of uh, reignite one of the biggest conversations in film fandom. Is is uh, Ford's uh, Deckard, uh, his this new gumshoe archetype? <laughs> is he actually a replicant? You yeah. know, that's that wasn't uh, at all in doubt in the in the theatrical cut, but it was yeah. in doubt in the in the director's cut. You know, um, and. The addition of a few seconds of footage depicting a unicorn, you know, yeah. uh, turns the theatrical cuts the theatrical cuts simple narrative on its head, you know. So it gives oxygen to the burning fan theory that Deckard is actually one of the machines that he's hunting, you know. Yeah. Uh, topping this off with Scott's uh, vision of the future was an updated ending, one which had like enigma and energy. Uh, I think it kind of pushed it from uh, just kind of a cult hit into a certified classic. The theatrical mm. cut is what did it for me, man. The director's cut. I'm um, sorry. Yeah, yeah, the director's cut, uh, not the theatrical cut, was what did it for me. Yeah, 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 yes. Yeah. So I think uh, same here. I only, uh, I I picked up the original Blade Runner at a DVD store. I think, right? Mm. Uh, and I was like maybe like just early into secondary school, so maybe about thirteen or fourteen, when yeah. I first got into that. Uh, I picked it up because of the title. Very honestly, right? I had just watched uh, Total Recall at that point in time, and I was kind of looking for something in the same vein. <laughs> and boy, was I surprised to see what I got. Um, but yeah, that was the director's cut, uh, I think. And it was only much later that after reading up a lot more, much like you, that I, I stumbled upon the theatrical cut as well, which mm-hmm. I actually didn't finish. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so like once, I think once it kind of hit halfway, right? And already a, a big fan of and having watched the director's cut a number of times, mm-hmm. um, I, I feel like I didn't need to to finish it. Right, because a version of this movie kind of already existed that I yep. enjoyed incredibly so, right? And I didn't need to have that counterpoint of the theatrical release. So people didn't enjoy it when it came out, sure. There are a lot of movies that we love today that were like that. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I didn't finish the theatrical cut. And of course, uh, the final cut um, expands a little on the, um, what the... the <laughs> Oh my god, it's so hard to keep up with uh, the director's uh, cut. The, yeah. with the director's cut as well. Yeah. Um, you know, and of course the digitally remastered one that they released uh for their twenty fifth anniversary, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was much obviously much better quality, uh, all in all. Yeah. Yeah. So why did I pick Blade Runner? Yeah. Um I, I think I think the idea kind of put in my head when we uh, recently there was kind of a slew of things that we were reviewing for genre uh, in particular Altered Carbon mm. um, that kind of brought uh, the movie back to mind right like Blade Runner is easily I, I tell most people who ask me like, what's my favourite movie of all time and I tell them it's Blade Runner 
Yep. Uh, but there was just a whole slew of of um media that was coming out at a point at a certain point, like a certain period of time that we were reviewing that had a lot of influence from Blade Runner. I mean, obviously, all Altered Carbon is one of them. Um, mm-hmm. you no. Know, in, in terms of its look, in terms of its feel and how things are treated. And uh, I just thought it would be interesting to kind of revisit um, the source of what is immense, uh, immensely popular genre now, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, hence Blade Runner. And of course, you know, in, in conjunction with that, we will also be talking about Villeneuve's version of Blade Runner mm. or sequel to Blade Runner as well and how um, it draws its inspiration for that, but it is its own kind of animal, right? Of course, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I think Blade Runner, in terms of its legacy, sort of, I, I, would, I wouldn't say that it, it invented cyberpunk noir because I believe there were a few anime things that uh, mm. arrived prior to Blade Runner, but yeah. it certainly popularized uh, cyberpunk noir to the point where it became such a mainstream thing that, you know, uh, as you mentioned, like things are altered carbon and there are a million and one cyberpunk noir things out there right now, like, yeah. and they're all Blade Runner based, you know. Yeah. Um, Blade Runner is, of course, set in um, 2019, which is uh, the good old days in our time, so, <laughs> uh, simpler times. But um, I mean, the, just because the the date is has passed us doesn't uh, negate its vision for the future. Like. it's a yep. futuristic 2019. Uh, this this kind of weird uh, Los Angeles uh, landscape. I love the set design of it. I love the lighting of it, the mood. You know, uh, Rutger Hauer is such a such an amazing villain. Oh, uh, yeah. Harrison Ford. Uh, I, I think one of his, hmm, uh, one of his best roles, I think for sure. Hmm. Uh, it's it's very yeah. different. It's very different from his usual, you know, Indiana Jones and action adventure type. Yep. Uh, Han Solo, as I mentioned, this is this is kind of his one more subtler roles. Uh, a lot of face acting, a lot mm-hmm. of body acting. Uh, and and that's that's just what it, noir calls for, like, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like just the way it was shot, right? And and mm-hmm. every. Young Harrison Ford brooding while having his whiskey is an amazing thing. You yeah. Know? And uh, I think, like, it's because there's a lot of, like, scenery chewing and there's a lot of very slow things. But, like, we've got some really, really amazing dialogue. Like, uh, Rutger Howe delivers one of the best monologues in all of cinema um, near the end, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with the tears in rain. And I love that um, particular scene. So powerful. Uh, but if you don't ever give the movie a chance, you will never reach that kind of like pathos, right? Near the end. Mm. Where, where uh, essentially like an immortal, like uh, not immortal, but like a, a being that is beyond human, right? Reflects upon his humanity. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it blew my mind, I think, uh, you know, when I was just first discovering it and it continues to do so even, uh, even so today, right? Having rewatched it recently for us, for mm-hmm. the podcast. <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, do you, Do you think that um, Philip K. Dick kind of passed away before before Blade Runner officially came out? Yeah. But obviously, Blade Runner is based on Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep, uh, which was kind of this uh, like the book was very different from Blade oh, Runner. Absolutely. It, it's loosely adapted at best. Uh, um, the he, like Dick's inspiration was not robotics, but kind of the real life. Nazi massacres, you know, uh, mm-hmm. whose diaries that he had studied from uh, his previous novel, The Man in the High Castle. Yep. Um, so the android is more of a metaphor for people who are physiologically human but behaving in a non-human way. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that Dick would have uh, enjoyed uh, Blade Runner? 
Ooh, wow. I I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think I think he would have. Like I uh, we've seen a lot of Philip K. Dick adaptations, right? Mm. Um, and and we've talked about them before. Uh, this being one of the earlier ones, if I'm correct, right? One of the first, yeah. Yeah, one of the first. So I feel like it remains true to the spirit of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, while at the same time expanding the world way past what I think I, I think they wanted to to explore, right? Yep. Um. So yeah, I do think he would he would have um enjoyed it. Unfortunately for him, I mean, it was sad lah. But it, uh, he did meet with Ridley Scott. Uh, just a, I think like a, a month or two prior to his passing, and Ridley Scott showed him the the first uh twenty minutes of yep. the film. Uh, and he was quoted as saying it was the greatest twenty minutes I've ever experienced. Uh, he he was kind of gushing over it. He <laughs> said, "Uh, I literally came out in a state of shock. Uh, when I close my eyes, I can still see that opening sequence. Mm-hmm. It's like being transported to the ultimate city of the future with all the good things and all the bad things about it. So, I mean, judging by his reaction." to the first 20 minutes he would undoubtedly have loved uh, the film and yeah and the director's cut eventually la, <laughs> yeah. yeah if uh, he was alive to see it which is which is amazing right because the first 20 minutes of the film especially if really Scott was showing him the the mm-hmm. uh, the, the the theater cut wouldn't yep. have contained much of his book at all yep yeah so uh, uh, yeah I think he would have liked it for sure like it definitely retains the big questions that Dick was trying to ask in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep mm-hmm. uh, and saw it to its thematic logical conclusion, I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I, 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 I wish we could have heard from him, you know, exactly where he stood upon that because there's so many authors that kind of usually hate yep. <laughs> the movies that, that um, the, the books uh, eventually inspired become yeah. yeah i mean for, for good reason la. i mean like ellen moore has been screwed over so many times mm. and Stephen king has been screwed over so many times like uh how could they not be cynical of it la? it's only kind of recently in over the last decade or so in the 21st century that that uh, proper adaptations or adaptations that have even exceeded uh the source material have have come around now yeah and and i think blade runner is one of the kind of the earliest success stories in terms of adapting a book I, I know a lot some people point to the godfather but you know it's a lot more straightforward to adapt the Godfather than this, lah. Mm-hmm. Um, I I certainly did love uh, Harrison Ford's character, but as you mentioned, you know, I think kind of the primary person I was most drawn to was Rutger Howard's character. Oh yeah, so good. You know, he was uh, he 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 almost feels like this uh, biblical fallen angel, you know, uh, kind of straight out of Milton's uh, Paradise Lost. You know, he he exacts this diabolical revenge on Tyrell, the the godlike corporate father figure who who shuns the replicants' uh, desperate demands for. Uh, an extension of his four-year lifespan, yeah. uh, and gouging out his eyes before murdering him. It's it's part like uh, biblical. It's also Frankenstein. It's also o- Oedipus. You know? <laughs> um, but but Betty also like like really displays real tenderness and compassion. Uh, mm-hmm. when his android lover Pris, uh, who's played by Daryl Hannah, is killed. You know. Yeah. Uh, as and as you talked about in the final rooftop battle with Deckard, you know, he actually chooses to save uh, Deckard's life uh, despite his superior strength, you know, jamming his, his uh, jamming a nail through his hands to, to keep uh, his falling internal systems running just for a few extra minutes. Uh, so, yep. so Betty goes from the symbolic devil to a Christ-like figure, uh, visually uh, sacrificing himself for mankind's sins and mm-hmm. thus proving himself to be morally superior to, to Deckard. Uh, and I think you're kind of really rooting for both Deckard and him at the same time. Yeah. 
uh, and like my young mind, uh, I mean, of, of course, this was kind of prior Heath Ledger's Joker and everything, like, where the the villain is just as compelling as the as the protagonist. And I think this this is my first movie where I experienced that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, like it's a—he had an absolutely brilliant performance. We don't really see much, right? Like in terms of, um, you know, um, if if we're talking about like the opportunities to show off their acting, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely Harrison Ford gets that. Rutger Hauer gets that. Uh, Sean Young looks pretty in most of the film. Mm. You know, but there's never really an opportunity for her to act outside of the the replicant role that she has, right? You Correct. know, so it yeah. really just becomes this to and fro between Deckard and Betty, uh, and that kind of like uh, tension between the two. At certain points, you're not. I mean, uh, you don't know if Deckard's a replicant. You know, Betty's a replicant, and so on and so forth. And at the end of the day, like who comes out more human, right? Like, what yep. is the uh, in in a future like that? Like, what does it mean to be human? You know. Mm-hmm. So, like these grand kind of like questions of existence and how they come up in a very like they don't preach it at you you know yep. uh, and it's not like uh, even Ghost in the Shell for example there are moments of like philosophical like grandstanding where they go into like these huge kind of monologues and, and talk about you know existentialism in the future and all of that like this, I don't think you ever get that in Blade Runner right and yeah. that to me is part of the charm of it you know mm. that it's very grounded within the world that it's built around itself and it never asks it never tells you to ask these questions like you end up asking these questions via you know um the performance itself mm yes i i agree and and let's say you're not uh an intellectual viewer just the, just let's say like, like you you don't go to your movies for uh, this kind of uh, philosophical or intellectual uh, chin stroking, you can actually just enjoy it aesthetically. You know, um, the the kind of Art Deco locations of a, of a, of a futuristic retro futuristic setup, which is I think the first time I've ever encountered that particular style retro futurism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's just beautiful to watch. Or you could just uh enjoy the amazing Ben Gallis soundtrack. You know, um, I I didn't know this at the time, but of course, um. Ben Gallis' soundtrack was the first uh, all synth soundtrack yeah. um, ever made for for a film, and and I think a lot of uh, at that time a lot of purists uh, it, it drew a lot of con- uh, controversy like, because yep. a lot of purists felt that um, a synthetic soundtrack could not replicate the swell and nuance of human emotion in the <laughs> way that an orchestra could like. yeah. And intentional or not, the controversy around that kind of perfectly mirrored the film's themes, right? Of yeah. machines struggling with emotion. So there's so much uh, serendipity with this film uh, and so much to uh, to talk about. Uh, but that Ben Gallis score, man, is, is just, is fire. It's been, it's been, oh, man. Uh, on, I've been listening <laughs> to it for, for 20 years now. Yeah, it's, it, it's insane. Like it is, uh, it has contributed so much to what like um, synthetic or electronic music as we know today, you know, is like so many people draw inspiration from that. So many film composers have gone on to draw inspiration from that as well. And yep. it really does set the tone. Like, if you were to take that away, if you were to have replaced it with any number of, of great soundtracks, right, with an orchestra, for example, I think it would be that much less. Like, we can't, you know, um, it's so integral to the film itself and the experience of the film mm-hmm. that you can't remove it at all, you know. 
Uh, yeah, well, what a, what a great call by by Ridley Scott like, to get Van Gallis to to do this, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's brilliant. Uh, as is the sequel to Blade Runner, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Um, when Denis Villeneuve's uh sequel was announced, you know, um, were you were you worried, skeptical? I was worried when they announced the sequel. When they yeah. said that Villeneuve was attached to it, I immediately felt a lot better. Um, of course, yeah. Yeah, you know, and same thing with, with the upcoming Dune. Same thing, um, like Dune is a mm-hmm. big franchise for me and we'll be talking about that eventually. Uh, mm-hmm. But Villeneuve, I think based upon all the things that he had done up to that point, um, which was Arrival. Arrival, Sicario. Uh, Sicario, right. Yeah. yeah. Arrival in itself is an ambitious adaptation. It's a difficult book to adapt. Exactly, right. And yeah. like, not, I mean, his his vision of, of um, his vision of Arrival is so different, right, from what the book or the short story rather actually afforded him, you know. Yep. So I was curious, but at the same time, it always came across to me that Villeneuve himself is a fanboy and a nerd in that fashion, mm. um, you know. So I wasn't too worried about the fact that he was uh, on board for the uh, on board for it, uh, mm. and the fact that Ridley Scott gave his blessings. Yeah. Uh, after they spoke, uh, I do feel like having all the new actors coming in like Gosling and, and yeah. uh uh Jared Leto uh and Dave Bautista like I was like huh, okay like I I don't really know what the story is gonna be so I don't know how that's gonna play out mm-hmm. um exactly but I think it, it was a fantastic job you know like certainly it doesn't capture the kind of um wonder and the kind of scale that the original movie had but very much in line with the theme and the look and the spirit of the original Blade Runner. Yes, yeah. Um, Blade Runner 2049 obviously takes place uh, 30 years after the Blade Runner film. Uh, much older Harrison Ford comes back. Um, I actually kind of... Uh, seeing Harrison Ford try is uh is new uh because he <laughs> he hasn't tried in a long time uh, yeah. and and to be to be on, really honest if really Scott had done this it wouldn't have been as good because really Scott has not been uh at his best uh, shall we say i think he, his his best has been his peak has has gone he's he's like Tim Burton you know he's yeah. kind of made uh flop of the flop of the flop uh and not in a not in a blade runner way like, in in the sense that it is it, quality is bad and the money it makes is bad because mm-hmm. I, I can't think of the last good Ridley Scott film I've seen uh, so Denis Villeneuve was like the perfect choice for this given Sicario and Prisoners and, and Arrival he's clearly a very sophisticated filmmaker yeah. and uh, understood the source material enough to not dumb it down you know mm-hmm. he there, there weren't uh, like big massive uh, car chases and shootouts with uh, robots and with machine guns you know it, it didn't become Terminator you know it's yep. <laughs> it was it, it's it still kept the dystopian noir and the the themes alive in in the film la. and also it kept the the ex- existential anxieties that are the, that are, are at the heart of the material mm-hmm. which uh which kind of he has the confidence especially with arrival and sicario to to kind of proceed uh at a sedately at a sedate pace mm. that is kind of uh, very at odds with today's more rapid fire blockbusters la. yeah yeah absolutely. yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, all in all, right? Like, mm-hmm. do you think it was enough? Like, was twenty forty nine Blade Runner twenty forty nine? Was it enough of uh, a piece to stand on its own? Or the, uh, because a lot of people, especially when the film was coming out, and and people who are close to us, um, were asking like, do I need to watch the original Blade Runner in order to be able to, you know, 
understand what's going on? Is it important? You know, Probably. It? Yeah. Yeah. So it, you still need some sort of like background knowledge about what's going on in order to enrich your experience going into 2049. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I actually think that um, 2049, you know, with, uh, with Deacon's, uh, Roger Deacon's um, cinematography, uh, the architectural designs, mm. the, the score by Hans Zimmer and, and Benjamin Wolfitch, um, they're not perhaps as groundbreaking yeah. as Blade Runner original was, but as a more as a complete film, uh, and uh, I actually think that it is better than Blade Runner mm. because it didn't it didn't require a variety of edits and theatrical <laughs> cuts and different uh, additions, you know, to, to yep. get across what it was trying to do. La. And in that sense, I actually feel that it was a more complete film than Blade Runner was. Mm, 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 yeah. Because I do I do know people who, who never ended up watching the original Blade Runner, you know, even mm. though they watched 2049, right? And yep. they love it. And and I think that, uh, so long as it's kind of its own, I mean, it, of, of course it's a product of its time, like, just yeah. with the kind of CGI that we can get today yeah. right yeah. and like the immensity and all of that like so much of that adds uh more life to a world that you know some of us have kind of like grown up with and grown to love um yeah but it gives us a sharper view mm. right a sharper slightly more detailed view about what that world could possibly be yes it's uh this is probably the 2049 i'm saying is the probably the highest budget art film art film i've ever seen <laughs> Uh, and only Denis Villeneuve can do that, lah. You know, yep. like there, there are few directors that can get like five hundred million dollars from a studio to make an art film. No, Nolan is one of them. But, yeah, uh, Villeneuve is definitely. Uh, he's getting one there. of them as well. Yeah, he's getting there he's as well. Uh, incredible film. Uh, do Do you feel that it is uh that it lives up to Blade Runner? Um, I mean, it it kind of feels like uh, if if they didn't bring Ford in, right? Yeah. To kind of reprise his role, I th- I thought it would have been a great kind of like one of those spin-off things. Uh, yeah. But bringing Ford back as Deckard uh, raises a lot of questions um, that I don't think we ever got answered just in the first film and even in the second film, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it it's it's a little annoying, I think, because I did want some sort of closure as that because I don't expect there to be like you know a thirty forty nine or something along those lines, right? right further down, uh, further down. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I think it did it justice, and it's pretty complete of it in and of itself as a film, right? But mm-hmm. putting the two together, like I wish there was a bit more closure, mm. uh, and you know, and kind of like plugging some of the holes that we had in the original one that they didn't quite address, that I wanted them to, and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, but all in all, like it's still a great film, and I think we rated it fairly highly when we first reviewed it for genre, right? Definitely, yeah. Um, and it also it was critically acclaimed and fairly uh, and fans loved it, lah. Uh, mm. which is unlike the reception of the original Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, it was it was kind of hit immediately, lah. Maybe the box office wise, it didn't gross as high as the as the bo- as the studios wanted it to. But yeah. uh, I think it, most people would consider it like uh, at least a an artistic success, if not a commercial success, lah. Mm, yeah. Um, does it have its flaws? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Blade Runner has his flaws too, you know. Yep. Um, I think Jared Leto wasn't particularly great. Uh, in uh, twenty forty nine, he was. It was uh, supposed to be David Bowie. Yeah, I mean, sadly, like, <laughs> sadly, we both, yeah. 
Bowie would have been amazing and particularly in that part like yeah. it was it feels custom made for Bowie yeah. in the in the same way that like kind of Nolan wrote uh Tesla in the Prestige for Bowie you know it's just yep. for for his mannerisms uh, uh but like Blade Runner itself is a very flawed film yep. and yet it's it's kind of perfect in its flaws uh. mm-hmm. and and a lot of the art, kind of the unanswered questions that Blade Runner for and Blade Runner 2049 leaves it's sort of like ingrained in the DNA of yeah. of, of Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the beauty of Blade Runner is in the negative space, in in the questions, not the answers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just that I mean, Gosling did a pretty good job. Like he's he he brews, but he doesn't brew as much as a young like Harrison Ford does. You know, just True. for like a, a comparison, right? Um, you, you know what the difference is? Is that like this is the Gosling performance that we've seen in every other movie? Yeah. Yeah. The difference is that like, we haven't seen, we hadn't, at that point, we hadn't seen him Ford do it at all. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. absolutely true. Yeah, th- this is exactly what we would expect from Gosling, exactly. Correct, yeah. Ele- elegant sadness and stoicism in the face yeah. is what he's done. It's his forte, la, and yeah. i just never seen Ford do it, and Ford does it. Maybe it's more of a surprise. Maybe that's where, that's where the awe comes from. Mm. But yeah, yeah. But I, I didn't think that Gosling did a bad job. No, 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 not was, at all. I, I feel we just didn't have a Roy Batty for 24 Yeah. Years. That was yeah, oh my it. god, yeah. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't have that one kind of m- moment, right? That is mm. that is, you know, pivotal to our understanding of the movie itself. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh and and that could have been it, right? And I don't think at any moment, even if, you know, um Bowie was around, uh, got yeah. So um and he had played oh man, what is his name? Can't remember. Uh uh, Leto's character yeah Leto's character right like I yeah. don't think at any point in time it was written in such a way that they would have given us that you know uh, Tears in Rain like with, yes. with uh, Rutger Hauer wrote himself apparently yeah. Um, so yeah so I, I think that's kind of the major thing that we didn't get from 2049 mm-hmm. um, and the major difference and, and therefore as good a successor as it was um, there were just some things, right, in direct comparison that just doesn't quite uh, live up to, to uh, the original. Yeah. 100% agree, la, but as, as kind of a... Uh, Blade Runner is a classic, and as a companion piece, uh, 2049, uh, it, it doesn't get much better than that. La. This was kind of the best version of a Blade Runner sequel that I could have ever hoped for. Agreed. And, and to think that it could have been so much worse, you know? Uh, <laughs> it's, I'm, just, I'm just so grateful la, that we got a very new version and not like a... <laughs> Ridley Scott version sad, sad to say <laughs> yeah yeah. you know uh, I think a Ridley Scott version of Blade Runner 2049 would have been more similar to uh, the, his later Alien sequels uh, <sighs> Covenant which were a bit yeah. Covenant yeah, yeah which would have been disappointing uh-huh. but anyways um, if you have if you were like one of those few people who have not seen Blade Runner and I think a lot of people haven't to be honest yeah uh, this, despite its cult classic status do check it out and I would Highly recommend the theatrical, uh, not the theatrical cut. Anything except the theatrical cut. Uh, uh, is what uh, I mean. Director's cut's good. Final cut is good. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually think the final cut added too much. So director's cut. Yeah, director's yeah. the fi- final cut is for like people who are already fans and who want more. You know, and mm. already like, uh, but like if if it's your first time watching it, I would yeah. highly um highly go with what hits is recommending. Go with the director's cut. Yeah. 
Correct, yeah, yeah. And and maybe it's just my nostalgia talking because that was my first introduction to the film. But I really do feel that the director's cut is the best version. It's lean, it gets to the point, uh, it, it fixes what was wrong in the theatrical cut, and then the final cut feels a bit bloated. Mm. Uh it's it's more of a collection of like extra deleted scenes and things like that. Yep. Uh which which is great too. I mean, once you become a fan, you should check it out. Yeah. But uh yeah, definitely go check out Blade Runner and its sequel, Blade Runner 2049, if you haven't. Yep. Yeah, Blade Runner 2049, it's a it's a long watch, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> but don't don't be intimidated by that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I, I wouldn't suggest watching both movies back to back. It's quite a feat um to do so, considering mm-hmm. that I just did it a couple of days ago. Wow! <laughs> yeah, it nice. was it, it was kind of rough. I I just really wanted to see like if if there was a flow despite the thirty year kind mm-hmm. of um gap, you know. Uh, no, there's no there's no yeah, it doesn't. Uh, you end up just sitting on your butt for like a really long amount of time. Uh, yeah, man. I enjoyed it, sure, but you know, it's yeah. not something you have to put yourself through. Definitely, definitely. Uh, you can find it on DVD, on VOD, on iTunes. Uh, Blade Runner is everywhere, guys. You know. Uh, and if you're interested, there are like you know comic spin-offs and novelizations and all of that, which have been uh fairly well received. Mm-hmm. But I I have not read any of them. Have you? Oh uh, no, I have not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're kind of Blade Runner purists, like. If it's official canon, then we'll then we'll catch it. <laughs> like. I'm not into the Blade Runner EU, so to speak. Um. Anyways, uh, let's move on to uh the segment where. Uh, I recommend something to Isa, and Isa sort of recommended something to me this month. <laughs> um, I think first off, I wanted to talk about uh, a film called Waves, mm-hmm. which uh, is released by A24. It came out in America last year, but it came out in Singapore. Early this I want to, I want to say January or February. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, early, early this year, lah. Yeah. Um, it is a. A, a dramatic film, a family drama written, directed, and produced by Tree Edward Schultz. Uh, it is it is kind of set against the vibrant landscape of uh, South Florida, and it traces the emotional journey of a black suburban family as they navigate uh, love, forgiveness, and coming together in the aftermath of a loss. Uh, and and why is my uh, descriptions kind of vague? <laughs> uh, kind of like it sounds like every other family drama out there because. I kind of don't want to spoil what happens in the middle, yeah. which is such a big, which is such a big thing, and it turns the film on its head. Yep. What I can say is that this film is one of the most beautifully double-sided, uh, balanced film I've I've seen. In in a sense that like the first half follows a particular character, and the second half spins off into a different direction. Yeah. Uh, but both balance. Uh, in a sense that, oh man, I'm going to talk in big generalities, <laughs> but. But the first half is very aggressive and masculine, and the second half is is very soft and feminine. Uh, first half is very uh, it's all about hurt, you know. Yeah. And the second half is all about healing. Uh, it's is this the the dual tonalities and the the balance of life like, is what this this kind of film is all about. The ebb and flow of life, like, the waves of life, um, and and just to see it uh, depicted particularly in the in a, through the lens of a. Of a black family, you know, uh, is is very interesting, la. Um, mm-hmm. you 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 caught this movie recently, yeah. and I hope I didn't spoil too much for you. But uh, the film itself is is quite engaging from the beginning. Yeah. With, uh, with the with the music. Oh, the, the music camp- is so good. The it's caught it's caught by Atticus uh, Ross and Trent Reznor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, amazing uh, soundtrack, but uh, uh, amazing score. I mean, but the soundtrack is also great. The it has like great, you know. Yeah. 
Frank Ocean, it has Radiohead, it has uh, Kanye West, you know, uh, basically a, a, a who's who of my favorite uh, artists uh, of, of the last two or three years, you know. Uh, brilliant, you know, but it was it's engaging from the beginning like, in terms mm-hmm. of the kineticism of the of the camera, what kind of oh, yeah. uh, kind of um, uh, bringing to life the energy and the vibrancy of youth, you know, mm-hmm. as well as well as the, as the recklessness of it, la. and and the camera work sort of like become becomes stiller, becomes more calm and serene in the second half, you know, it's just a, a beautiful uh, duality la, that this film has and. Uh, you having watched it for the first time, were you were you kind of surprised by the by the by the twist in the middle? Um, I think the I I I I kind of understood uh, at the point in time when when we met yesterday, especially right, like just yeah, there was that something was going to happen near the middle of the film. Like you could feel that it was building up to that. Uh, mm. I don't think I I anticipated what that exactly was. I thought something yep. very different would happen. In the mm. same vein, but something different, uh, nonetheless. Right. Uh, right. And then from there, you know, uh, it was kind of up in the air. Uh, like I like in the uh, I like how the second half eventually takes a very different point of view and a point mm. of view that I didn't expect it to take, uh, or yep. whose point of view I didn't expect to take rather. Um, yeah. And that uh, surprised me, you know. So on both accounts, right? Like uh, what actually happened, the twist that happens. Mm. Um, and I'm a bit uncomfortable with the fact that we even have to say that there's a twist, you know? In the middle. Because yeah. saying a twist is, is kind of giving it away, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's... Uh, but I mean, like, we can't... There's very little to talk about <laughs> if we don't... If we kind of don't reveal that. Like, very, really, it's two very distinct halves, right? So much yeah. so to the point that there were moments in time, like, I felt I was watching a completely different movie if it wasn't for the fact that some of the aesthetic choices in terms of the camera work, the cinematography, and and the music choices still mm-hmm. continue to tie those things together. You know, oh the color man, like yeah. I've never seen personally. I've never seen the colorist credited on on like the the opening credits. Yeah, but it and like, I, I was wow. I was taken aback. Mm-hmm. Like, why are they crediting a colorist? Yeah. And then like you kind of see why they credit the colorist very the early colors, on. Very yeah, early the, on. Yeah, the colors pop, man. Oh, they, they so were so good. Uh, yeah. like just the way that. It's filmed, right? Like, I don't think I've seen... Um, it It feels like something that's very fresh to this genre of film. Yeah, the family drama. Right, so the family drama. Like, I haven't seen something that is uh, aesthetically poised this way for yeah. a family drama, you know? And that kind of, like, kept me interested, uh, especially in the beginning, enough for me to be really, really invested by the time like, everything goes down, right? Mm. Um. So, yeah, I... I yeah, it, it's a hard film to talk about without giving things away. Uh, I suppose we can, we can talk about what happens in the first half la, because it's introduced immediately. La. Like yeah. we, we are, we are kind of introduced to a high school wrestler named Tyler mm-hmm. uh, who has a girlfriend uh, and he is an avid uh, wrestler. You know, rest, He goes to wrestling practice, he goes to class, he works out, he hangs with his friends. He, le- he leads a very complete uh, school school life and social life. You know, he's uh, academically driven. He is uh, driven in sports. He has a he has a social life. Yeah. Uh, he's close with his family. Um, but you know, there's kind of this like unspoken pressure by his his parents, uh, played by Sterling K. Brown, specifically the father, mm-hmm. to to kind of push himself like this idea that like, unless you are an excellent black man. That, that you won't make yourself yeah uh, you won't make something yeah. of yourself like we, you need you need to work two hundred times harder you know than than normal person yeah uh and, and that, that's kind of what's driving Tyler la, and he kind of pushes through a lot of difficult situations including an unexpected 
uh, pregnancy with his girlfriend, uh, including a, a shoulder injury that happens to him during wrestling that he kind of just, he, he, he steals pain medication. He steals, I think, Oxycontin from his parents yeah. to, to get through the day. Uh, and it kind of just, his life kind of just devolves from there like, because he can't keep that balance anymore, you know? And mm-hmm. he's sort of driven to it by his father, but also driven to it by his own ambition and his own uh, youth and sense of recklessness and, and, and hurts and feelings of resentment with regards to his girlfriend uh, and misunderstandings, you know? And it's this just kind of like rush of, of emotions that the, the music uh, uh, encompasses, that the camera work, which is dizzying at points, mm. encompasses, that the colors uh, encompass, you know? Uh, and then like to see it flip on, the, on, on, on its head, on, on the second part where it's so calm, where it's so serene, where it's more about reflection, you know, yeah. uh, that it's, uh, it was pretty startling at first, but I've come to like appreciate both halves of it mm-hmm. as, a, as two parts of a, of a larger story. Yeah. 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 I mean, the first half, like with everything that's going on, um, mm. it, it is aggressive, right? It's loud. Mm. It's aggressive. Um, the sound design is, is pretty intense, right? Like the, I, I just noticed kind of moments in time where, you know, there's music playing in on the scene, in the scene itself, and then it, it kind of phases in and out depending on like the yeah. where the character's headspace is at, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it's distracting at the, uh, it's distracting, but at the same time, that's something that we kind of experience as well, as composed yeah. to the relative quietness and calm, uh, mm-hmm. that that um comes afterwards. Comes yeah. afterwards, you know, like yeah. kudos to Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, um, mm-hmm. for for the work that they've done, but. All the powerful stuff comes from that quiet and calm. Yes, yeah. Right, and that makes it, uh, that stark contrast really, really does drive home some very, very intimate and powerful points. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it does tell a, a very different story, a sadder story at the, at the second half. Yeah. Uh, necessarily, like, because of what happens in the middle. Uh, it kind of becomes a film about recovery and how the people left to deal with tragedy move forward or attempt to move forward, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, in fact, this uh, quieter second half that makes the film so breathtakingly original, you know. Yeah. If the film was just the first half, it would have been a great film. But uh, the second half actually makes it very original and even greater, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nature of the sp- split means that kind of audiences are advised, and I, I, w- I would also advise you to go into waves as cold as possible yeah. without uh, reading. Uh, I'm assuming you are listening to this review after you've already seen it. Uh, <laughs> but if you haven't, I would advise you to not read reviews, to not even watch a trailer and just go in cold. Um, me as a kind of film critic, I managed to... I didn't see any trailers for this. This is certainly not one of those like, oh, Avengers Endgame, we have like seven trailers kind of thing. You know? yeah. Like, didn't pop out on my radar at all. I went for a screening due to the nature of my job because I'm a, I'm a reviewer at Potwire. Went for it. And I've, I honestly have never seen like a room full of like the most cynical film reviewers. They're like nothing. They're never happy with anything. Nothing surprises them. Like the, the moment when the film's quote unquote climaxes in the middle and something happens, like there was like an audible gasp in, <laughs> in my cinema of critics. You know, this is not like your average audience. Like I've never seen people this uh, jaded, so genuinely surprised at something that happens in, in, in a film. Uh, and that happened so early on in the film. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty startling. I was I was pretty blown away by it. La. And uh have you have you have you listened to uh Frank Ocean's uh Blonde? Yes, yes. Oh absolutely. Yeah, so mm-hmm. 
Uh, apparently, Trey Edward Schultz uh, modeled this film after the two sides of Fred Ocean's Blonde, which, oh. uh, in- which was interesting. I didn't even notice that I had seen this movie three times. Yep. I, mean, uh, I went to watch it with again with my friend Shafiq, uh, Shafiq Hussein, who reviewed Insecure with me uh, a few episodes ago. He pointed out to me that uh, it reminded him of uh, the two sides of Blonde, which I didn't even pick up on. Mm-hmm. And then I subsequently went to read interviews and uh, Trey Edward Schultz intentionally mirrored Blonde because it was his favorite album. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was blown away about it. I just thought like, wow, there's a lot of Frank Ocean songs here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although, that's, that's one, right? And I was just kind of curious um, after life. I was like, oh, there's Frank Ocean. Oh, there's another one here. So, I only found out and it only clicked for me after I went to find out why. Mm. Right? Like, um, oh, I didn't have traffic there to tell me about it, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, it is... A very, I mean, it's it's not you can't map it directly. I think, but there is an astounding amount of um, similarity between the way you know the album mm-hmm. is structured and how the film goes. Yes, yeah, the the intense opening, quiet the second half. Mm-hmm. Uh, fucking fucking love this movie. In when I first saw it, like, and I would highly recommend it to you all. And please go in fresh. I think uh, the acting all around is pretty oh, sterling. Mm-hmm. It's my first introduction to uh, Kelvin Harrison uh, Jr. who plays uh, Tyler. Yeah. I thought he, his intensity was so oh. um, magnetic, you know? His, his his acting in the wrestling scenes were amazing. Yeah. Like, yes, that was yeah, that, so, so good. Yeah. There was, and the sound design, especially when his kind of shoulder is crunching, mm. it was like, oh, I, I don't even feel that way watching like real fights. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like that was I. I grimaced, like yeah, mm-hmm. it was so so good. Like on the flip side, also like uh, Taylor Russell who plays Emily, uh, the younger sister, uh, a very different performance, but equally equally brilliant. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Uh, Sterling K. Brown as the dad. Sterling K. Brown is like <laughs> the, the fucking king of pay off. Like black black patriarchs want to break your heart. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. Like from this is us to Black Panther to this, you know how many sad. Black family stories as he's told, but he's so good he's at so it. He's so good at it. You he, know, he's uh, so good at it. And we also have uh, one of the Shyler sisters. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we also have one of the Shyler sisters. Exactly. Um, one of the few white people in the film, Lucas Hedges, who is kind of like uh, an indie star. I guess he's <laughs> he's in every like uh, buzz will be indie film like ever made. Like, I feel because <laughs> it's like. Manchester by the Sea, he was in Lady Bird, he was in mid-90s, uh, a bunch of other things. Like, he's also really great in this film as mm. a love interest yep. for, for Emily Williams. Um, what I particularly liked about Lucas and 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 uh, Emily's romance is like, you know, the awkwardness at first, mm-hmm. the build-up of it. I, it actually got me interested in a, a brand new character that they dropped on us like three quarters of the way into yeah. the film. Yeah, I have to say, like, honestly, I thought he was just supposed to play like a foil, right? Like, yeah. You know, distractor and all of that, but like to genuinely build something out of that was surprising. Uh, Correct, yeah, with his own arc, with his own backstory mm-hmm. and everything, yeah. and his backstory, of course, like serving as a parallel or at least thematic parallel, like yeah. if not direct parallel to uh, what's happening with Emily, like the theme being forgiveness, of course, and healing. Uh, I think Lucas is great. I love the way that the dialogue is is structured as well. You know, the way that people talk over each other. Yeah. That it's not like I say one sentence, you say one sentence. The the artificiality of script writing mm-hmm. is not present when Emily and Lucas are talking. They talk over each other. It's yeah. awkward. It's cute. It's very real. It's very. It's like kind of kind of the way um Noah Baumbach uh, writes mm-hmm. uh, You know, if you've seen Marriage Story and things like that. Uh, brilliant film. Uh, love it. Love the colors. Love the music. Yeah. Uh, 
love uh, the themes and the act. It's brilliant all around. One of my favorites of the year, actually. Good stuff. Really, really good stuff. Highly recommend it. Where can people find it? Uh, it's actually right now available on the projector's uh, streaming platform. Uh, the projector uh, allows you to buy video on demand, or rent, uh, rent movies to watch from home. You can go to the projector's website to check it out. Uh, or the projector is open, so you yeah. can actually go there and watch it for yourself. Uh, otherwise, it's available on all VOD platforms, uh, the, the, your iTunes, you know, uh, everywhere that you, that you would rent or buy films. It's available now, like, including DVDs. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, next up, we'll be talking about a fairly uh, seminal cartoon, or at least has grown to be la, yep. in Samurai Jack. Uh, would you like uh, kind of give a, a little synopsis breakdown here? Oh, wow. Where do we even begin? Okay, so uh, Samurai Jack is an animated TV series. Uh, I always struggle with his name. Gendy... Uh, Gennady Tartovsky. Uh, Gennady Tartovsky, right? Uh, whose yep. whose primal we recently um, kind of reviewed as well. So brilliant one. Yeah, yeah. it premiered. Oh, he also did you know stuff like Dexter's Lab. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is like what it premiered in late two thousand and one. Uh, yes, and uh, with four original seasons that span uh, the entirety of of um period what am i talking about um Cry, like, like the, the uh, 2001 to 2005 like, i guess yeah so four seasons yeah. so for all of that um mainly my introduction to it was because it was on cartoon network right yeah uh you know and i was uh, you know just kind of casually watching it was something kind of different from the other offerings that cartoon network had at the time it was very dialogue light uh, mm-hmm. a lot of very interesting visuals i think at that point in time we didn't have that kind that visual look of Samurai Jack didn't have, uh, wasn't as popular or wasn't as um, uh, common as it is right now, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I went along and like kind of like watched throughout that. But essentially, what it is is we follow Samurai Jack, um, who is a um, samurai in kind of feudal Japan, and uh, his father eventually has to sacrifice himself in order to put away an evil demon called Aku, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then of course. Jack inherits uh, the need to defeat Aku uh, with his father's sword and gets flung into the future. That's essentially what the story is about. What follows after that is an almost episodic look into the different... Um, so how he tries, how he tries to get back to his time period. Like. Yeah, you know, across like all sorts of different like uh, uh, cityscapes and landscapes and kind of like um, strange situations where he basically wants to get back to his time so he can stop Aku because he's now in a future where Aku is is all powerful dominant you know yeah because he failed to stop Aku in in the past you know he was flung to the future uh Aku wanted to take him on when Aku was more was more in control uh, and had grown to become what he is in the future uh. yeah and and the world you see is kind of this insane dystopian world you know where aku is is lord you know he's god and he rules over everything you know yeah. and it's it's a planet just just as unrecognizable to samurai jack as as could be like it's filled with monsters and aliens, aliens and robots yeah. uh yeah it's it's weird and he's kind of a man out of time and he wants to get back to stop all of this from happening uh not 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 so much like not he doesn't have anything against like the aliens or anything like yeah. he just wants to stop aku's rule mm-hmm. uh and I think 
I only saw five or six episodes back then just because I channel surfed uh, Cartoon Network a lot. Yep. Uh, but I never did follow up. Uh, and when the revival came around in the in the late twenty in the early twenty tens, I believe twenty twelve, twenty thirteen. Yeah. So they brought it back on Adult Swim. Yeah. Um, in twenty like twenty twelve or twenty thirteen. Right, so they brought right. back all original, uh, all all the four original uh, seasons um, mm-hmm. on Adult Swim, and then from there because it, it had such a good run on Adult Swim. Oh wow, twenty seventeen actually. Twenty seventeen. Oh, Thirteen right. years after. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and then uh, then season five comes back in twenty seventeen. Yeah, uh, season five obviously takes place uh fifty years later, but we'll get into that uh in a bit. Let's talk about the first four seasons first. Uh, that's demarcated into yeah. Samurai Jack that was and Samurai Jack that ended. Uh, Samurai Jack that was right. Like, what appealed to you about Samurai Jack? I think the artwork was so unique at that point in time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that uh even at that age, whatever age I was when I was watching this on Cartoon yeah. Network, um, the fact that it took a very different approach to storytelling, uh, it was so little dialogue, right? Like everything was based within the action and within the scene itself. It was something mm. very different to me as as a kid. Uh, and that drew me to, to Samurai Jack. Like we had so many other things going on on Nickelodeon and on, on Cartoon Network itself that weren't Samurai Jack, you know? So it stood out from the pack by having this very kind of, not crisp per se, but very clean kind of animation style that allowed for you to immerse yourself into this world without the distraction of like paying attention to dialogue and all of that, right? Mm. And its episodic nature, didn't it didn't matter if you followed the mm. actual season itself, right? So like, I think those were the two big things for me. And in my mind, it was just a great all-round thing. How many episodes I actually watched, I'm not mm. really too sure. I can't say for sure. It was only much, much later Mm-hmm. That I got a hold of all four seasons, maybe in like 2015 or so. Like when I when they first announced that there would be a season five, I realized that I did not have a complete knowledge. I didn't have complete knowledge of what those four seasons actually were, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I managed to get my hands on that, and I I made sure I finished all of that before season five came out. Um, but yeah, the main draw was just how different it was. Um, mm. for the time that it came out, right? Um, the music was great. It was a bop. Uh, the original uh theme song was actually written by Will I Am. Yeah. Uh, which blew my mind because I had no idea yeah. who Will I Am was until much later. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So like, uh, it 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 was just a confluence of things. I feel, uh, and how different it was. Uh, is also a testament to how important it eventually became, I think, in inspiring a lot of the animation today that we have. Um, I agree. There's, there's a lot of Western... Um, I guess there's a lot of Western animation that kind of takes a, a bit from anime. Yep. Uh, and Samurai Jack, I guess, was one of the first Western animations to really feel anime-ish. Yep. You know, it was, it was pre-Avatar, it was pre-Korra, things like that. Um, there is... What... what what surprised me when I was first watching it was that, uh, like you said, the kind of the painterly, minimalistic style of the artwork, yeah. you know? It wasn't dialogue-heavy. In fact, it was extremely dialogue-light. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, obviously, it's not quite primal dialogue-light, which primal has no dialogue. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but it, it, it comes close. Uh, and kind of the, the pre-primal, shall we say, proto-primal. Proto-primal. 
Yeah. Uh, and it, it was just uh, very different uh, from everything else, the, the, the dialogue-driven comedy that was available for as children's animation on Cartoon Network at the time. Yep. You know? I think it was, it was very bold, it was very striking. Uh, the art style was just uh, so minimalist, a lot of still panels mm. uh, that's kind of evocative of more of comic books than of uh, moving animation. Yep. Uh, and, and yet, it still managed to, the, these like still, still painterly shots uh, and uh, the changing of the aspect ratios and things like that, it still managed to get across a, dynam- a dynamicism and a kineticism mm-hmm. that uh, perhaps uh, even moving uh, 3D animation couldn't capture. Like, because yeah. it takes kind of it kind of takes place in your mind, you know, mm-hmm. like your your brain kind of fills in the blanks between one still shot to the other. So in in that sense, Samurai Jack was it appealed to my comic book senses. Mm, um, yeah. It also doesn't really have a continuity per se. Every episode is episodic. Although, like, if you do watch season five, some continuity is filled in. Yeah. Basically, all you need to know is that he was flung from the future. He's trying to find a portal back home. And then every episode, he almost finds, finds oh, a portal back home, but he, he doesn't, doesn't, you know. <laughs> uh, and there are no real recurring characters except for the Scotsman. Uh, yep. Jack and Aku are obviously the, the, the only recurring character. Uh, but, like, kind of the joy on, in Samurai Jack is in the, in the age of, like, serialized uh, animation mm-hmm. where every show like Korra like like Avatar and on, honestly children and adult animation right now has become like way too serious like yep, yep. uh, one episode bleeds into another you can't really tell there's no there's no real distinction between what is episode 5 and episode 6 what Samurai Jack really does really does in the first four seasons is have distinct memorable short stories mm. uh, you know like some of them uh, it's not it's not about like cliffhanger endings or plotting. La. It's it's just it could be a trippy magical interlude, it could be a noir detective story, it could be a epic historical battle, uh, with only twenty-two minutes of setup and payoff and res- resolution. Yep. Uh, often with no dialogue. It was it was it was brilliant watching these team of animators push the boundaries of the show's kind of hand painted backgrounds mm-hmm. and, and minimalist design to to such glorious lengths. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like even to this day, like mm-hmm. there are still episodes that, like, uh, you know, I I can remember like so clearly, like the one where he goes to train with the monkeys, right? Yeah, with the rocks tied yeah. to his feet. Yeah, I love that. You know, or even like the cantina kind of scene in the city, with the mm-hmm. aliens and all of that. Like all of that uh, lives very vividly in my mind, and not because I just revisited it, but just because like, uh, it each episode had such an interesting quality about mm-hmm. it. Right, where you had a unique kind of like uh, uh, genre genre uh, yeah. that anyone wanted to tell interesting, very simple stories in a very dynamic way. Yeah, like some episodes you can tell that this is the director of Primal. Mm. Like some episodes are serious and epic and bloody and just gorgeous uh, war-like scenes, uh, you know, battle sequences. And other episodes, you can also tell that this is the director of uh, of Dexter's Lab. Yeah. You know? Because there is, there's like a lot of broad comedy, there's a lot of silly kiddie humor, you know. So both sides of, of uh, Tatowski are here, you know, the broad humor, the, the childlike uh, comedy, and as well as the kind of brutal adult uh, animation style that he, he likes. Uh, and the, the jumping from genre to genre, like, took me aback at first. Like, I didn't know what to think of it, but I soon grew to really love it. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, the, like, like you mentioned, I think the first se- the second season premiere, uh, Jack learns to jump good, which is the training of the monkey yeah. episode. <laughs> Uh, really uh, opened my eyes to the fact that oh, every episode is a is a genre exercise. Yeah, yeah they're trying to tackle 
different things, you know. And then they started to get broader and broader and broader with that, you know. There, there are some. There's even one episode that doesn't feature uh, Samurai Jack at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, there's a mm-hmm. uh, there's an episode where Samurai Jack isn't a hero. I think my favorite episode is season four, uh, episode eleven called "The Tale of X 9 Oh yes. Uh, it's it's the only episode where Jack is not the main character. Um, one of the most extreme breaks in structure the show has ever done. Uh, and it's kind of this narration heavy noir detective story, <laughs> much like uh, Blade Runner, uh, where our Sam Spade is is a robot detective named named X Nine who mm-hmm. is blackmailed out of retirement by Aku for one last hit. Uh, it's uh, it's interesting because I sympathize with X Nine and not Samurai Jack in that story. Yep, you know, yep. like I wanted him to succeed and not Jack, which creates a, you know, a, a, a huge problem. <laughs> huge problem, especially in the minds of uh, I'm assuming kids like, who are supposed to be watching this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Like that, that definitely is a standout episode, uh, and just how inventive everything was. Uh, but that being said, right when it ended after four seasons, I think. That without resolution, without right? yeah, without resolution, it required them to come back with season five, right? Yeah. Like we wouldn't be talking about this on behold if season five didn't come out, you know, mm-hmm. just because something was lacking, you know, after four seasons, and as great as those four seasons were, right, you needed something a bit more to kind of tie everything together as a franchise, and that's where season five comes in. So yeah, in, in the yeah. final ten episodes, the the show like definitely con- definitively concludes the mm. the story la, and it's a it's a very touching journey, um, and it's very different from the first four seasons in a number of respects. You know, yep. number one, it's it's a lot more mature to kind of reflect the the maturity of the audience right now la. The yep. show is thirteen years, uh, has has been gone for thirteen years, so people who were like you know young at the time are now in their teens or even early twenties yep. or or even in their 30s watching it, you know? So it had to reflect the maturity of the audience. So it was bloodier, it was grittier, it was more serialized to kind of uh, give us, a, you know, kind of a proper multi-part ender. Mm-hmm. Think of it as like a 10-part series finale. Yeah, know? exactly. Uh, Jack has not aged at all uh, in the show. It has been 15 years. He's been stuck in the future, which in itself is shocking, you know? But then, like, you learn that the toil of his journey has led him to kind of slip into hopelessness and mm-hmm. despair and even madness, you know? Um like Jack Samurai Jack in his first four seasons is spare on plot. Um but the final ten episodes is not spare on plot. It's very plot driven. <laughs> yeah. It's very serialized and it's very emotionally complex. Uh but it still has it retains the the key elements of Samurai Jack, which is kind of the minimalist visual splendor, the paneling, the painterly, uh the painterly images, like and etc. You know? Yeah. So uh I really did love the same same but different uh Samurai Jack season 5. Yeah. I mean like it felt like season 5 was one last exercise, right? One last kind of genre exercise to kind of yeah. round everything out. Uh and I think they did an excellent, you know, kind of by tying everything together. You kind of feel the weight of all the first four seasons and every episode that goes on and it's a different story and he has gone through 50 years of that right without aging mm-hmm. you know and of, of course thematically it explores um you know the ideas of loneliness of hopelessness um he has been, he's a man out of time out of his time and, and a man who feels like he's running out of time because it, it he he doesn't know um how right to get back to his time and stop Aku from causing all of this to happen mm-hmm. um even to the point where, and and honestly, just to, like to the point where he considers suicide, right? Uh, yes, and that times, is yeah. is something that um, I don't think we would have seen in the original four. 
Nah, know? it's not for kids. And it's not for kids, you know. And obviously, like we are much older now, having followed it back then and 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 viewing it now. Um, Sam Rightrack murders human beings in season five. Yeah, for the first time, ever. He's o- he's only ever killed robots, you know. And just seeing blood spit out from Sam Rightrack's sword is just so shocking, you know. The first time I saw it. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. is. It's quite. Yeah, like it. 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 It feels the audience is made to feel. Um, yeah. The amount of time that has passed, right? The the trauma, the PTSD, yeah. everything is taken very seriously. You know, it's mm-hmm. not it's not like it's not like a kid show like, where oh something happened, I'll get over it. Like Jack never got over it. Yeah, it's he's he's just he's been trapped there for fifty years, and you think about the amount of damage he's taken, the amount of damage he's inflicted. Yeah, it, it it has a immense psychological toll, uh, mm. and season five really digs into that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I I think it was very interesting the way they 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 set up the whole Daughters of Aku thing uh, mm. as well, which eventually leads him to taking his first human life since this whole adventure starts. You know, um, I had mixed feelings about his love interest and all of that. Uh, and uh, mixed feelings about the ending as well. Uh, yep. It doesn't take away from the magic of, of the season itself or, or of the franchise uh, in any way. Like, it took me a while to understand why they decided to go that way. I think, mm-hmm. um, but there is a, there is a resolution there where at the end of his journey, Jack finally kind of understands um, that despite the fact that he has not aged and he's been this kind of one permanent thing mm-hmm. um, through this entire story, his hero's journey, right? Like it is fleeting after all, yep. you know, and hence the final scene and how it it takes place. So. I wanted I wanted something more conclusive, right? But yeah, mm. um, given what Samurai Jack has been for so many years, I I was wrong, I guess, to expect that, you know, because mm. he delivered more of the same, right, in a good way. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of intentional open ended endings, yeah. not unintentional open ended endings. Season four being cancelled was an unintentional open ended ending. Mm-hmm. There was no poetry to it. Yeah, there is there is a certain poetry to how bittersweet. Jack's journey ends. Like, yeah, you know? yeah. He he does get what he wants, but he doesn't get what he wants, you know. And that is the kind of tragedy that that uh that is so prevalent in all great uh hero the the hero's journey, you know? yeah. Like they all have some sort of like bittersweet ending. Uh you, you don't always get what you want. Uh maybe a fraction of it, but not the entirety of it. Yeah. Uh I think it was really quite well done. And yeah, kind of another sign of the maturity of Samurai Jack, like that uh that you know that you could deliver an ending like this for a more adult audience mm-hmm. that more, may be more willing to accept it like, that it wasn't a neat pet resolution where they live happily ever after yep. etc yep. there's a bit of heartbreak in that uh, so really really liked it I mean and as well like seeing the the art style in a more modern uh, context because it's cleaner it's crisper yep. it's more I know HD is the wrong word but it, it, <laughs> it looks more it looks more HD uh, it looks more it's it's just so beautiful to watch Samurai Jack in in that white screen, mm-hmm. but of course it, it does shift aspect ratios a lot. It does the panels a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of still shots, you know. Of uh, just I, I keep using the word painterly because it is, you know, it's 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 just such a painterly series, <laughs> beginning to end. Uh, fucking beautiful, uh, I like. I really loved it, and and of course the the the. I've talked a lot about the visuals. I think the sonic choices yeah. uh, play a huge part in in a dialogue light show as well, uh, Because sonically, it it can tell it can 
drum up tension, it can drum up heartbreak, it can drum up joy, uh, without ever you, you know hearing Jack actually articulate any of it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like the uh, it is so rare for it was just really rare for um what started out as a children's animation series mm. to tell stories in the way that it did for its time, yep. right? And like for it to have grown to, into. I I guess it is a cult classic after all, you know. Um, Definitely. Right now, and and how they decide to wrap everything up, uh, we can look back and say like, yeah, it was groundbreaking for its time, and it it all in all, it wrapped up really well. Yes, I mean, visually so different from any other cartoon you 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 can find. Uh, tonally, it's so uh, it, it walks the tightrope of many genres. Mm-hmm. Uh, musically, it's so. Uh, has such a great score and soundtrack, you know, uh, and it has, and like thematically, this this macabre meditation on grief and regret, yep. and sometimes social satire, and sometimes very overt uh, screwball comedy. <laughs> uh, it's 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 a package that only Samurai Jack has, you know, uh, and that that makes it very very special. Uh. Um, and I I think it wasn't maybe. Not the most perfect show ever made, no, but yeah. it did it did leave a very lasting impression uh, on me la, after mm-hmm. I finished uh, watching it. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, I I I hope the I'm gonna I'm gonna try and see if I can get my nephews to watch this um, mm. because I I think it's important uh, for them to experience something different from 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 you know what they usually watch. And hopefully, they'll yep. enjoy it. Oh man, uh, great series. Uh, loved, uh, enjoy, enjoyed. Uh, like Samurai Jack from beginning to end. Uh, were there some filler episodes? Yeah. Were, was the ending maybe not the best? Yeah. But I think as an overall package, Samurai Jack is one of the best cartoons I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. For sure. Agreed. Uh, you can find it on uh Cartoon Network's website or Adult Swim's streaming service. Yeah. Uh, both of which are available online. If you uh live in Singapore, I know you get the pesky. Uh, not available in your region. Uh. Thing. Just just VPN it. It's very easy. Yeah. Uh, of, of course the DVDs are out. You can buy it on iTunes. You know, you yep. can just buy all five seasons and just go to town and watch it, like, Because I think uh, a lot of it is a lot of the first four seasons are so good and so dialogue light that you might just want to watch it at the corner of your eye while you're doing work. You know, it's almost like you can you can just appreciate the visuals and the sound. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Really watching it. You know, it's like it's like Tron. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Okay. I mean, like nothing like Tron, but also like Tron. Yeah, I know. I completely know where you're coming from. Yeah, just just in the sense that I can I can watch it in the background and still fucking love it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. Next week we'll be off, but we'll be back in I think two and a half weeks for a very special. Uh, I know me. I know. Judging from our analytics, some of you like more than half of you don't come from Singapore, but. We come from Singapore, uh, myself and I said it is. So uh, we'll be celebrating our Independence Day, our National Day, uh, on August the 9th, which is when we'll be releasing uh, a special all-Singapore edition of Behold, where we'll be talking about our favourite works of local art. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can range from comic books, which is our main topic, the art of Charlie Chan Hock Chai. Uh, then we can kind of delve into the, the political side of, of of Singapore as well as kind of a, a side piece to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we can we'll be talking. I'll be talking about my favorite P Ramli uh, film, at least the, my favorite dramatic P Ramli film, uh, Ibu Merthuraku, which means uh, my mother-in-law. Uh, and then we will talk about a uh, quite a famous Singaporean theater piece called the the uh, Emily of Emerald Hill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so looking forward to an all Singaporean uh, all Singaporean breakdown in the next one. Yep. 
for sure. Yep. Um, till then, though, I mean, do keep a lookout for that one. But uh, please listen to uh, Genre Equality as well. We have a new episode of Genre Equality coming uh, next next week. Uh, that will, that's certainly going to be a, a banger because there's a lot of good stuff to talk about. Mm-hmm. Maybe not the main topics, though. <laughs> like, maybe, like, the peninsulas of the world are not meh. But there's, like, some hidden indie gems in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, surprising yeah. indie gems, really. Uh Yeah. Really unexpected. Like some of the stuff that I wasn't even planning for the rundown ended up being genre. So um, yeah, uh, do look out for that as well. Um, but till then, you know, uh, this has been Hit Zero. This has been Isa. Goodbye, guys. Ciao.